Uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to continue in our series through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, but I also just wanted to say to you a quick reminder that we're in a season here at Life Church where we're uh, observing what we call the good neighbor policy. Now, there's a lot of different things going on with uh, with mask wearing and social distancing requirements and mandates and ordinances and all of that. And I just want to tell you, I didn't go into ministry to be your medical advisor. Uh, and so I can't tell you all of the right things to do in every single situation, but I can tell you scripture teaches us to be a good neighbor and to make sure that we are always loving the people around us. And so here at Life Church, we're just asking that you think about the, the comfort level and the peace of mind of the person sitting next to you before you seek to make your self-comfortable. So if that means that you put a mask on because that's what's being asked of us in this season, then please go ahead and think about the people around you. Uh, if you if you have heard Jesus tell you something different, it's not what he told me. Uh, so what he told us was love your neighbor. All right. So whatever that looks like for you, we're going to trust Jesus in you and your relationship with him because you're mature adults. And with that in mind, let's continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus teaches us what it looks like to be mature Christians. For the last several months, we have been talking about this sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Really, it is Jesus going up on the side of a hill, sitting down to express that he has authority and that he's about to say something important. And as he sits on the side of this hill, these people who are around him, a couple of hundred people probably who are around him in that moment, they heard him teach them what it looks like to live in God's kingdom. Not in eternity, but here now as eternal life begins for those who would consider themselves disciples of Jesus. And so he's talking really even throughout all the years to us today to teach us what does it look like for us to be followers of Christ. And really so far he's done some dismantling and reconstructing of some bad teaching and given us some better theology to replace it with. And now after spending all of this time over the last couple of chapters of scripture, as he's had us focus on ourselves and the way that we live, now he's going to make a shift in his focus. And in chapter 7, we see him begin to talk about the way we engage the world, the way we engage other people. In fact, as we get into this today, why don't we read verses 1 through 6 of Matthew chapter 7. Uh, this is our text for today. Jesus says, now he's in this final leg of the Sermon on the Mount. He said all of these things. He shifts his focus and he says, do not judge so that you won't be judged. Now, the funny thing is he's just said all of this stuff about how you can be a good, mature Christian, right? So now he says, if you're living this way, now I've, I've got a warning for you about the way that you engage the world. Once you've figured out how to be a good Christian, a good follower of Jesus, the very next thing he says when he talks about how to engage the world, he says, don't judge. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure that you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, take the beam of wood out of your eye 
and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Don't give what you hold to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. Now, Jesus has just said a lot here. My goal for you today is that by the time you walk out of this room or log off this live stream, that you will have an understanding not only just of what Jesus has just said, but how you can go and live it out. All right, so we're going to talk over the next few moments about what, ju what judgment actually is. I want to share with you some of the ways that we misunderstand, misappropriate, and misdirect uh, the idea of judgment as Christians. And then I think that by the end of this message, I will be able to give you some hopeful action steps for how we can go and engage other people, especially in light of this idea or this command, if you will, to not judge other people. So, Jesus, I pray that you would speak through my voice today, that you would use the notes that have been prepared, but more importantly, Holy Spirit, would you enlighten us to be able to understand your word as I share this teaching today. God, not just so that we could be smarter, but so that we would look and live more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so the first question of the day is, what in the world is judgment? Now, you probably aren't going to be surprised by the idea of what judgment is or how we would define it, but the, the Greek word that Jesus uses here could be defined this way, to distinguish between good or bad. If you are judging somebody or something, you are making a distinction between something or somebody that you say is good or bad. To judge, this Greek word that Jesus uses is to make a determination of right or wrong, to, be, uh, to determine whether a person is innocent or guilty. Uh, the definition, if you dig even deeper, you find that to judge, Jesus is saying, is to separate or to choose or to decide or to put a person on trial and then to condemn them or to punish them if you have found that they are guilty. This is what Jesus is saying that we should avoid doing because if we judge, then he says you will be judged in the same way or with the same measure that you measure other people. So you could say that judgment sets up the judge as a moral authority on an issue and over a person that they are judging. So you think about a judge in our legal system, right? The judge in our legal system, we look to them as the moral and legal authority over the people that they are presiding as a judge over. So we put that in a spiritual context, and if you act as a judge, then you are placing yourself as a moral and spiritual authority over the person or people or group that you are presiding over as a judge. The act of judgment measures the person being judged against the moral standard of the judge. And it declares whether or not they meet or fall below that standard. And then, and then as a result of judging a person, you will then treat or speak to or speak about that person according to the ruling of the judge. In other words, if you judge that a person is guilty of a certain sin, you've set yourself up as a moral authority of that sin issue over the person that you are judging, and then you treat them like a sinner because you've determined that they are guilty of the sin that you have judged them being uh, a, a committer of or guilty of having committed. But Jesus actually uh, alludes to this. He says this, that, that judgment also assumes that the judge, the person doing the judging, also lives up to the same standard that they measure other people by. 
And this is true in our legal system, right? We assume that a judge, a legal judge, we, there's a phrase that we use, that, that you're not above the law, right? So just because you're a judge of the law in America, you're not above the law in America. So if a judge commits a crime, they are just as susceptible to being tried and found guilty, and the same is true in our spiritual life. And so Jesus is making sure that we understand if you are going to be a spiritual judge, just know that you will be held to the same standard as any other person who judges. The problem with human beings, though, is that, that we, we judge others like it's an Olympic sport. The, the, the Olympics are coming up. Have you noticed the lifestyle that Olympians live? Like they're fully committed to it. Like they woke up today and made, they made decisions about what they're going to eat, what they're not going to eat, the amount of exercise that they, use, that, that they engage in, what kind of exercise that they engage in, and, and they do it all so that they can accomplish this goal. And, and one of the saddest things that we see in the modern church, particularly in our context, is the way that we seem to wake up in the morning and engage in conversations and, and refuse to be in conversations and, and, and exercise our words as if we are practicing for the Olympics of judging other people. I mean, it is wild how good we are at making judgments of other people. And the problem is that, uh, that human beings playing the role of judge uh, can, can be seen all over the place. But James, to begin to bring some hope to this, uh, he, he says in James chapter 4, verse 11, don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. In other words, you're setting yourself up as a moral authority. You're not just a citizen anymore. You're saying, I'm now the judge. In verse 12, James goes on, he says, Therefore, uh, he says, there is one lawgiver and one judge who is able to save and destroy. There's something hopeful in that. Who's the one lawgiver and the one judge who's able to save and destroy? His name, his name is Jesus, right? Some of you said the Lord, some of you said God. That's all the right same answer, isn't it? There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So we can already say something hopeful here. There is a righteous judge. His name is Jesus. But when you judge others, you are literally tr trying to take God's job away from him. You're saying, I, I, would, like to, I, I would like to do the, the job of the one judge who can save and destroy. With this in mind, listen again to how Jesus begins this thought. He says, do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Jesus is trying to do us a favor here. He's trying to let us off a hook that we put ourselves on because we seem to, for whatever reason, love to cast judgments against other people. And the reason he wants to do this is, is because he understands that the standard of the one judge is perfection. And so if you're going to become a judge of other people, then you get held to the standard. And the standard is you had better be perfect. You're not just a regular person anymore. You're a person being held to the standard of perfection. 
Thankfully, and this is the gospel, that thankfully Jesus came and died and rose from the dead to create a brand new covenant for us so that we could be members of the kingdom of God without having to receive the judgment of being held to the high, perfect standard of God. That's the gospel. Thankfully, Jesus did that for us. But he said, every time that you play the role of judge, you're taking Jesus' job. And every time you try to take Jesus' job, you're asking God to place you onto the same pedestal of standard of perfection that Jesus resides in. And Jesus is the only one that can be on that pedestal of the perfect standard of God and actually survive. Paul said it this way in Romans 12, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Therefore, any one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge one another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. If, if, if this were just a one-point sermon, it would go like this. Only God can meet the standard of eligibility for judgment. Only God can meet that standard. So resign the position immediately. Right? Quit the job. Run away from the office as fast as you can. You do not want this job. You cannot pay for the responsibility that it comes with. You cannot handle it. You do not want it. Thank you, Jesus, for telling us this good advice. But again, unfortunately, uh, in this uh, hard time, we, we seem to have a hard time with this lesson. I mean, did you live through 2020? Have you been on social media? Have you watched the way that the church has behaved and treated ourselves in the last 18 months? I mean, we are experts at judging one another. We've had a really difficult time understanding this, this, this teaching. I mean, I mean it, 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 we might get into this a little bit, or maybe I'll be smart and not say much about it, but... Um, it's been heartbreaking to watch the way that we didn't listen to Jesus' advice to not judge one another over the last 18 months. By the way, if you're sitting here going, yeah, it's been really heartbreaking the way they did that, watch yourself. Because we are a part of the body of Christ. So I don't stand up here as a moral authority saying, man, it was so heartbreaking the way those Christians did that stuff that they did. Thank God I didn't behave like that. Because to, to express it like that would be to put myself in that exact pair of shoes. So we come together as the body of Christ and we say, God, we have committed this sin. We have fallen short. Forgive us. Right? We take the heart of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 where he, he repented on behalf of sins that he never personally committed because he knew God's people, the people of Israel, we did this. God, we have sinned against you. And so, so I'm not coming at you today saying, oh, you guys need to. Or, or I'm also not coming at you saying, well, it's so good that you have figured it out, Life Church. All those other churches out there did it wrong. No, we have failed. So we carry this burden. So we have to come to Jesus and say, what can we do? And, and Jesus is going to continue to give us some good advice. By the way, isn't this such an encouraging sermon? I came home all charged up from two weeks of vacation. I just want to pump you up and make you feel so good. Uh, sorry, if it doesn't feel that way yet, it, it will in a few minutes, I, I think. 
Let's, let's keep listening to what Jesus says. In verses 4 and 5, he says, Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Uh, or, or how can you say to your brother, Let me take that splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. He calls us hypocrites. I've said this before in this series because Jesus is, has used this word already. He actually is the only one to use this word in the Gospels in, in Scripture. And, and when he uses it, he's actually borrowing a, a, a pop culture term of his era that was ref, used to refer to actors, people who played a part that wasn't who they really were. He says, you're a hypocrite. And he says, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. I love this illustration, by the way, and I love how Jesus reveals that he's got a really good sense of humor, right? Like, he, he comes and he, he doesn't just give us a teaching, he gives us a funny illustration. The illustration is, you're walking around with a stick, a plank, a two-by-four pointing out of your eyeball and going, hey, bro, you got something in your eyelash, Hey, can I take care of that for you? How could you? How could you even see it? We, we, make, we make livelihoods out of inspecting the speck in other people's eyes and, and refusing to acknowledge the beam poking out of our own. Remember what we've already learned. God is the only one eligible to judge, so at any time that we do it, we're wrong. In fact, we're guilty of judgment. Okay, he's the only one eligible, though. And now Jesus paints this picture of what it looks like when he judges. He says, you're like a dude walking around with dirt all over your face and going, you got a little spinach in your teeth. Well, let me take care of that. It's like the person, it's like the person who is in a really broken, unhealthy marriage and then stands up and tries to tell everyone how they could ha have a healthy marriage. It's like the person whose kids are just rebellious jerks to everybody and then wants to give parenting advice. It's like the Christian who says, you can't be a Christian if, and then you fill in the blank with what you think disqualifies someone from Christian faith. You can't be a Christian if you deal with same-sex attraction. You can't be a Christian if you voted Republican or Democrat or for that one particular Republican or that one specific Democrat. You can't be a Christian if you're an anti-vaxxer or an anti-masker. You can't be a Christian if you wear a mask because obviously you don't have enough faith. You can't be a Christian if you believe in uh, critical race theory. Uh, you can't be a Christian if you deny critical race theory. You see all of the different ways that we have decided. I, I, I mean, this landed at home for us in a number of different ways when we were told, like, you're not a real church if you have church online. And then I heard some other churches who said, well, you're not a real church if you're still having church in person. Isn't it interesting how that works both ways? Here's, here's the wisdom, is that there really wasn't a, a right and a wrong. It was the question was, are you honoring what God told you to do? And can you, can you keep your eyes on the field that God told you to harvest and to plow? And then, and then do this other thing. I know this is crazy new advice, but mind your own business. 
Sometimes I feel like Jesus tells me that. When I, when I look at what other people are doing, when I, when I look at the way other people have decided things that I don't like that they decided, when I look at the way other people are living in ways that I don't love that they're living, and Jesus would go, Tim, just come, just come here, just come here, come here, kid. I, you know I love you so much. I love you so much. You know, you and me, we're good, right? But I just have a little bit of advice. Just mind your own business. This is, this is what Jesus is trying to tell us here, to mind our own business first. Now, that's an important caveat. Jesus is not telling us that we can never point out another person's shortcomings. He's saying, make sure that when you do, you don't look like a fool because you are so compromised in your own life and you refuse to recognize that you yourself are also a broken person before you go and deal with somebody else's brokenness. Don't go telling someone how to raise their kids when your kids suck. Because who was given by God to make sure that they didn't? It was you. It's like the manager at work who never does anything and then gets on you when you don't do your job the way they want you to. Or it's the way that you do that for the coworker that doesn't do their job the way you think that they should. Or your neighbor who doesn't mow their lawn the right way. Or drive the nice enough car. Or the, the person who doesn't read the Bible in the right translation that you think that they should. I mean, it's just the list goes on and on of all of the different ways that we determine that we are better than somebody else. And Jesus says, fine. Fine. You get to determine that if you want. Just understand that you've automatically decided that you want Jesus' job and you're held to his standard. Right? God, forgive us for the way that we break this command. This is not to say that there aren't real sin issues in the world. You shouldn't be an alcoholic. You shouldn't abuse your children. We hold to a standard of sexual ethics that are written clearly in Scripture. We hold to those unapologetically. But while we hold to them unapologetically, we don't judge. We have to walk that line. We have to walk it. Judgment causes us to create issues that we decide are worse than others. And ironically, judgment in itself is a sin issue. So judgment leaves us very loud about things that we think other people get wrong and ironically very quiet about the things we get wrong. I'm reminded of this story in John chapter 8. Let me read it to you. It says, starting in verse 2, at dawn Jesus went to the temple again and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. This is another moment where Jesus is doing some teaching. It says, then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. <gasps> the crowds all said. And the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what should we do? Verse 6, it reveals, they asked this to trap Jesus in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. And Jesus uncharacteristically un of all of the other scribes and the rabbis of his day, he doesn't give a long-worded response to this issue. It says that he stoops down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. 
He just ignores them, and he's writing something. The story doesn't tell us what it is that he's writing. I've, I've got a couple of ideas, but there's a solid chance that I'm wrong. It's just a personal opinion, so I won't even share it in the middle of a sermon. But he stoops down, and he's, he's writing, and it says they persisted questioning him. So he stood up, and he said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first one to throw a stone at her. And then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. For the record, I mean, literally for all we know, he could have just been drawing smiley faces or practicing his signature. We don't know. He he stoops down. He continues to write on the ground. When they heard Jesus say, what did he say? The one among you without any sin, you can throw the first stone. He's literally saying, if you have no sin at all, you have a green light. Go ahead and, and kill this woman who you found committing sin. Side note, where's the dude? That's a different sermon. <laughs> but it says in verse 9, when they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. You got to wonder if it was the old guys who were like, my list is so long. That it it didn't take them long. There's something about the arrogance of youth, you know, especially in the scribes and the Pharisees. There's something about the arrogance of youth. It's the young person's game to be convinced that they've got it all figured out and they are like God's answer to the universe, right? So you can imagine the old guys dipping first. And then these young cats standing around, like these, you know, 19, 20 guys in their 30s, and they're like, <laughs> jokers. Man, they've got no zeal for God. Just gave up the fight because Jesus says one sentence. Wait, where's my rabbi going? <laughs> I don't have any sin. I, well, okay, there was that one time. But, uh, you know, like I, I prayed about it. It's fine. I'm good. Okay, there was that other time. I don't know how long, it could have been 15 minutes. The story doesn't tell us what Jesus writes, and it doesn't tell us how long it took for the youngest, dumbest one of them to leave. We do know Jesus was a patient man. It may have been a long, long time. And so, so finally, all of them are gone, and it says that Jesus stood back up, and he said to her, woman, where are they? You, I love this. Where are they? Where'd they go? As if he didn't know exactly what was happening in this moment. Where'd they go? Has no one accused you? And she says, no, not one. And he says, okay, well, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Do you notice the subtlety of what Jesus did in this moment? He set the bar at perfection. They couldn't meet it because they were coming with judgment. So he says, fine, you want to play the judgment game? The bar is perfection. Oh, you can't meet that? Fine, I'll give you an exit because I'm gracious. And so they leave. And Jesus looks at the woman who was caught, the woman who had no leg to stand on, the woman who came in her brokenness uncovered. And he says, for you, I choose mercy. That we would understand that Jesus always chooses mercy for those who don't want to take his job. For those of us who would say, I am a sinner, I'm like the woman caught. I've got nothing 
to stand on. I am uncovered and I admit it. I'm broken. I'm ashamed of my sin before Jesus himself. And Jesus would say, no one else can accuse you because they don't live up to the standard. I gave them a way out because I'm merciful even to them. But I will pour mercy out on you like you wouldn't believe. In the middle of your in, in the middle of your being laid bare in front of me, I will give you mercy. It's amazing that the one person qualified to condemn chose not to. And how often we come being so incredibly unqualified to condemn, and we make an attempt to do it. It's incredible that we would be so arrogant, that we would be so prideful, that we'd be so full of ourselves. But Jesus actually models how we should engage with sin when we see it. Because again, the point here is not to say you never get to say anything about sin. That's not the point. The point is you never get to judge anyone. So Jesus models, what does it look like for you to engage with sin when you see it? He's not saying that there's no room to call sin, sin. Remember what he said to the woman at the end? He says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. He, he said what she was doing was sin. He didn't excuse it. He didn't say, oh, you know, you, you're obviously, you obviously know what you did wasn't really great for you, so we'll just call it, we'll just give you a pass. He didn't say that. He called what she said, what she had done, he called it sin. You know what he was doing in that moment when he used the word sin? He was saying, I recognize that what your actions led you to should have been condemnation and death. I'm calling it sin so that you and I both know that what you did puts you in a position of deserving judgment and condemnation. You are guilty, but I release you. Go and let that mercy weigh on you more than my judgment would have. Go and live differently. Go and be a different person. Go and sin no more. But Jesus is also modeling for us where we should direct our search for sin first. It should always begin with a look in the mirror. We should be on a constant search for sin in our own lives. Right. I don't know if you've ever heard it put this way, but there's an old uh, illustration that says that Scripture is like a mirror that's held up to our lives so we can see the ways that we do not measure up to the image of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who shines a light on the mirror of the Word of God so that we can see the ways that we do not yet measure up to Christ. And it is His mercy that allows us to stand in front of that mirror, see the ways that we fall short of the image of God in our own lives, and still receive the love and welcome of Jesus into His presence. It is His mercy that says, I don't judge you if you were willing to come and look at yourself in the mirror that is my Word and receive the grace of Jesus that comes from my Holy Spirit that I extended to you on the cross. If we're willing to look. But it's hard to look in the mirror. It makes us feel bad about ourselves. You know what makes us feel good about ourselves? Not looking in the mirror and looking at how other people fall short. So we project our own brokenness onto other people and we say, you see, you see what they did so that I can feel better about myself. 
I guarantee you every single time that anybody has ever judged another person, they are at some level aware of their own brokenness. And the reason they're judging someone else is because they're afraid to come to terms with the fact that they are a broken person. And so they put a band-aid over the pain of coming to terms with their own sin and brokenness by judging someone else. This is where we get the old expression, hurting people hurt people. You don't hurt other people and judge other people because you're perfect. You do it because you are broken and you're afraid to admit it. And you're afraid to come to Jesus. Isn't this a great encouraging sermon for you today? Hopefully this is setting some of us free. I don't want us to be encouraged by this, or, or I don't want us to be discouraged by this. Uh, Paul, in fact, says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, he says, You are saved by grace through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. You weren't saved by anything that you did. You didn't get the grace and the love of Jesus because you were good enough. You got it in the middle of you being completely, I mean, embarrassingly unworthy. And he gives it to us anyway. Self-examination is the tool that reminds us that we are just like the woman caught in adultery. We are sinners saved by grace. So we have no room to brag or boast or point a finger at somebody else. So, so why are we talking about this in, in light of what Jesus is saying? Is that self-examination should make us humble people. And, and humble people measure other people differently. Humble people measure people like this. James chapter 2 says, Speak and act as those who are being judged by the law of freedom. That's James 2.12. Speak and act as those who are being judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. And then I love this statement. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy wins. Mercy takes a victory lap over judgment every day of the week. Remember how Jesus said it. You will be measured by the same measure that you use. So the question that Jesus wants us to ask is, do you want to measure with judgment, knowing what the standard is for people who measure with judgment, or do you want to measure with mercy, knowing that mercy triumphs over judgment? And again, mercy does not deny that there has been wrong that has been done. It, it doesn't pretend that sin isn't real. It doesn't excuse it. Mercy is not a slippery slope to some theology that says that whatever you do is okay. Just mercy, 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 grace, grace, grace. You just do whatever you want and then just pray and repent. No, mercy actually tells us go and sin no more. Mercy commands and demands that we change. But mercy doesn't condemn. Amen? So we begin with self-reflection, then we can move forward by giving away the same mercy that we have been given. Because it is only mercy givers who are positioned to help fellow sinners. And this is exactly the point that Jesus is making. Listen again to verse 5. He says, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. He is not saying, recognize that you're a sinner and sit on the sideline and feel bad about how terrible you are at being a human being for the rest of your life because you definitely suck. He's not saying that. He's saying, take care of your issues first, and then you will be eligible not to become a judge, but to become a servant. 
to become a helper, to go and with humility help other people. And because you, you gain this, this incredible wisdom, this incredible humility that says, I was a sinner, I was unworthy, I was the woman caught in adultery, and I received mercy. So what do I want to do? I don't want to judge you. I want to be humble and give away what I was given. I want to give away the mercy that I received from Jesus. Once we gain that kind of wisdom, then we are eligible to help because then we can be trusted not to judge other people. Again, Paul says it this way to his, his disciple Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul writes this incredible statement. He says, And I am the worst of them. In another translation, it says, I'm the chief of sinners, right? If you line up all the sinners in the world, put me at the front of the line. That's what Paul says. And I would have a pretty solid argument that I would go in front of Paul. Verse 16, Paul continues to write. He says, but I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. You see, it wasn't Paul's righteousness that gave him authority. It was his humility that gave him authority to call other people to a higher standard. It was his recognition that it was only by the grace of Jesus and the mercy of God that, that set him free from his sin. It was his recognition that he was unworthy but made righteous because of what Jesus did. That's what gave him authority to call other people to a higher standard. And this is why Paul wrote words like, follow me as I follow Christ, not follow me as I work out a perfect Christianity. Follow me as I follow the high standard. Jesus is saying, absolutely, go ahead. You have a green light to inspect the speck in your brother's eye, but only after you've laid down the log in your own. It goes in that order. Receive mercy. Come to terms with your own brokenness, and then you'll have authority and humility and wisdom to help other people. By the way, Jesus is also not saying that you have to be perfect before you can help anyone because then no one would ever help anyone ever. Right? He's not saying you have to be perfect. The goal is to come to honest humility, not perfection. So now as we begin to wrap up, uh, let's look at this final statement that Jesus makes. And I'm just going to tell you right now, it seems like all of a sudden Jesus is going to change subjects. At first glance, when you read this, you're going, okay, logs don't judge, right? Speck in the eye. Okay, I'm tracking with all this. So far, this all just totally makes sense, Jesus. I, I get it. And then he says, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. And I'll confess to you, the first time I studied this passage years ago, I went to one of my mentors and I said, why did Jesus change subjects right here? This doesn't make any sense to me. And thankfully, I had a good teacher in that moment who helped me understand what Jesus was trying to do in the context. We understand that Jesus he is not actually disjointedly changing topics. He's actually giving us some brilliant marching orders. He's actually telling us how to behave. Now, to understand this first, we just really quickly need to understand what the pearl is. It's not the, the pearl that you carry is not your opinion about how other people should act and behave. That puts us all the way back up to that judgment issue, and we've just undone the entire sermon, and you probably would like to get, go to lunch today and not have me start over, right? So, so it's not your opinion about how other people should behave. That is not the pearl. The pearl 
is the humility and wisdom that you've gained from receiving the grace of Jesus. It's the aha moment that you now carry with you into your next moment of living and into every day of the rest of your life that says, I'm not worthy, but I've been given mercy, so I'm going to go and sin no more. The wisdom that teaches you how to live because of what you've been given. Gary Rasmussen, a member of our church and council member uh, here at our church, he reminded us during our, our morning prayer time today uh, what it says in Proverbs chapter 3. Let, let me just read to you what Gary read to us. He, he reminded us that scripture says this in Proverbs three thirteen through 18. Happy is a man who finds wisdom and who acquires understanding. For she, wisdom, is more profitable than silver and her revenue is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels. Nothing you desire can equal her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left, riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant, and all her paths are peaceful. She, again, wisdom, the proverb author is talking about wisdom. She is a tree of life to those who embrace her, and those who hold on to her are happy. What are we learning here? That the ultimate treasure that we carry is the wisdom that comes from humbly receiving the presence and the mercy and the love and the word of God. So Jesus is saying, don't judge so that you'll be eligible to understand wisdom because that is true treasure. That's like a pearl that you carry with you. And now he's saying, don't take that pearl and throw it in front of dogs and pigs. So now that we understand the pearl, we can look at what these dogs and pigs are. I'll just simply put it this way to you, that dogs could be considered those who would attack the truth that we offer, right? Have you ever gone in like in honest, all humility, really trying to help somebody? I'm not trying to judge. I'm trying to help you because I love you to see a better way that the way you're living is destructive and it's hurting you and hurting other people. And I'm really just trying to help. And in, in your best effort to lovingly try to help someone, they bite back at you like a dog trying to chew your face off. And you were like, you didn't see it coming. That's, that's what Jesus is saying here. That, that person is like a dog, the person who would attack you in your humble attempt to lovingly help them. And, and a pig would be those who cannot value wisdom that is rooted in humility. Right? You throw something in front of a pig, you throw a filet mignon in front of a pig, you know what they're going to do? They're going to eat it up just like it's slop. You throw a pearl of wisdom in front of a person who thinks spiritually like a pig does, about food, and you know what they're going to do? They're going to completely undervalue it. They're not going to understand the weight and the value of the wisdom and the lesson that you have gained from receiving mercy from Jesus. Now, these people uh, who are, these are people who would hear your humble help as judgment. And it is possible, by the way, to go and try to humbly help someone and have it be received as judgment. That's why this scripture that we're talking about today is one of the most misused texts of scripture by non-Christians used against Christians. We go and we try to tell them, hey, there's a better way for you to live. And they go, but doesn't the Bible say not to judge? And you're like, wait, I wasn't actually judging. I was trying to lovingly help you. And they misuse scripture against our own help. Why? Because they're like dogs and pigs. Now, Jesus is not giving you wise counsel here to go and start calling people dogs and pigs. 
Because then again, we get all the way back up to the judgment issue and we've undone the entire sermon. I'm pretty sure you want to go to lunch and you'd like me not to start this. We've been through that before, right? Okay, so we're not going to start the sermon over. We're not going to go around calling people dogs and pigs. Jesus is giving us wise counsel here. Jesus is saying, don't give what is precious to you to people who are not able to appreciate its value. In other words, stop expecting non-Christians to act like Christians. Stop trying to disciple people who don't want to be disciples of Jesus. Isn't it wild how much the church judges itself and saying, you know, oh, you're doing all this terrible stuff. And then we look out at the world that we're supposed to love into the kingdom. And we go, how come you don't want to be a part of us? And they go, it's because you're jerks to each other. And then we go, well, fine, you're, you stink too. And we judge them. Again, it's like an Olympic sport to us. And Jesus has just dropped the judgment altogether. Just drop it all together. But he's also saying, stop expecting people who aren't in the kingdom to live according to the rules of the kingdom. No matter how people respond, we obey Jesus. We, we obey Jesus' command. So, so you might be sitting here going, wait, okay, so, so, so I can't judge anybody. And, it, and if I call somebody who is sinning out to be a sinner, even in the most loving way, and I, I like genuinely trying to help, and then they reject me, I can't say anything about that. So I'm just going to throw my hands up and just not say anything at all. I'm just, I'm just not going to say anything at all because the world is falling apart so rapidly, and, and evangelical Christians are just so hated because we've really done like a wild job at being like Jesus in the last 18 months. And so, you know, what? I'm just going to button it up. I'm not going to say anything at all. I'm just going to sit here and attend church and fill my tank and just get super fat in my Christianity and never exercise my faith because it's just impossible to bring anybody to Christ because out there, everyone's like... Is anybody else like me when you read this stuff and you just go, where is the hope in all of this? So what, what am I supposed to do if I can't say anything? Because it seems like whatever I say, I'm going to be judged. And I'm not even trying to judge, but you're going to say I'm... Does anybody else struggle with this? The hope is that it was the mercy of Jesus that got you into the kingdom. It won't be the judgment of Christians that will get non-believers into the kingdom. So what do we do? You don't run around calling people who don't want to hear your loving, wise, humble advice about how they should live differently. You don't run around calling them dogs and pigs. You run around telling them they're loved by Jesus. And you do what Jesus did with the, with the Pharisees. Well, hey, if you, don't, if you don't have any sin, you get to judge. And just like Jesus, love them enough to give them a way out. Jesus didn't chase them down and go, no, no, hold on, I've got a bone to pick with you. I've got 16 sermons on judgment and sin that you need to hear right now, and you're just going to hear them because here I am. Jesus didn't chase any of them down. Not a single one of those scribes or Pharisees that walked away from Jesus and the woman caught in adultery did Jesus chase down to correct because they walked away. What did he do? He gave mercy to the person ready to receive it. He didn't throw his pearls of mercy in front of the scribes and Pharisees. They didn't even understand the gift that they were given when Jesus let them walk away. And so he didn't explain it to them. He didn't, he didn't waste his energy. He didn't waste the gift on people who wouldn't receive it. So for us, what do we do as we walk forward? This is the rule. No matter how people respond, we obey Jesus. We never 
judge. Because we don't want to be held to that standard. And because we've received mercy, we want to love other people and give them mercy as well. Luke wrote it like this in his gospel in Luke chapter 6. Jesus says in this version, starting in verse 37, Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. Now, we preach this out of context and pretend that Jesus was talking about money here, but he actually was talking about giving mercy. It says, for the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. So as long as we give mercy, we will receive mercy. The second that we turn that switch of judgment back on, and we say, oh, you're a pig, you're a dog, you're not good enough, I've decided. Then we put ourselves on Jesus' pedestal, and we get held to Jesus' standard. So God, help us to not stay in that job position. I quit. Will you join me in the unemployment line of only receiving and giving mercy? So I began this sermon by saying that Jesus shifts his focus and begins to talk to us about how we engage with other people in the world. And he really does shift his focus that way and begin to talk to us about how to engage others. But isn't it interesting that the roadmap for engaging with others begins by engaging God in our own hearts? Isn't it interesting that there is never a moment in, in Christian life where we get to go and talk about somebody else without first having an encounter with God in our own lives? So this is where we end, with an encounter with God. So the question is, how does a sermon like this land in your heart? I know how it lands in my heart. I know the stuff that God's pointing at in me and saying, hey, go and sin no more. I know the places where I'm prone to judgment of other people because of the behaviors that irk me and that I think that other people shouldn't do. And God needs to look at me and say, hey, you need to receive mercy before you go and tell other people or even have your opinions or even come to me with your prayers about how you wish other people would behave more like your version of me. And so I come to God in repentance. I come to God in humility and I ask to receive his mercy. If, if you were to think about the way that you engage with other people, would God find you to be a judgmental person? Or would he find you to be overflowing with mercy? And if the way that you begin to answer that question is, well, I'm not like all those judgmental people. I'm definitely a mercy giver. I would encourage you to ask yourself that question again. God, help us to be mercy givers because we first are recipients of your mercy. I think the next question that we have to ask is, where are the planks in our eye? Where are the places in our own life, in our own relationship with God, our own engagement with the world, that we need to come to an honest look in the mirror and allow God to point out the places where we have sinned and fallen short of the glory and the standard of perfection that is God's? The reality is, Scripture is clear, all have sinned and fallen short of God's perfect standard. All of us, every single one of us. So I'm not asking you, have you sinned? I'm asking you if you've come to terms with your sin. And let's not do that thing where we say, I prayed a prayer of confession of faith. I'm no longer a sinner. No, you are still a sinner saved by grace. 
So what are we doing? How are we engaging? How are we responding to the reality that we have sin issues in our life? Is, Is there some area of pride in your heart about how you live as a Christian? Jesus would invite us to come to the mirror and receive his mercy. I just want to, I'm going to pray for you in just a moment. I'll I'll wrap us up and then Pastor Mark is going to come and give us a couple of instructions before we uh, get out of here today. But I I just want to invite you before I lead us in a moment of prayer uh, to invite you to come to a moment of prayer on your own, right where you're sitting with Jesus, whether you're here on campus or watching us online, uh, right where you're at right now. Why don't you, if you want to close your eyes, set your stuff aside, uh, put all your distractions away uh, and, and just put your attention on Jesus for a minute. And if there's some area of business that you need to go, oh, God, do a surgery on this eye, on my spirit, on my soul. There is, a, there is a sin issue here. There is a pride issue here. Whatever it is, I've been judging people. Come to God in a moment of confession and repentance. I just want to invite you to do that now. So God would come to you in humility, asking for you to hear our prayers. Jesus, I pray that in response to every single one of these moments and these prayers that are being laid before you in this moment, these these hearts that are being laid bare before you, that you would respond to us the same way you did to the woman caught in adultery. That you would say, you do not judge us. You do not condemn us. So, Lord, we receive your mercy. If that was you, if that was a meaningful moment for you, would you just say to God in your own words, say, thank you and I receive your mercy I receive your grace and thank God for his faithfulness and his goodness, that that his faithfulness is so great and so good to you. Thank you, God. We thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. If you're sitting in this place and you've never actually begun a relationship with Jesus, I'm actually going to ask those same elders who were at the walls earlier, I'm going to ask them to go and make themselves available at those walls. And as you are exiting, I just want to invite you, if you need to have a conversation with somebody about your personal relationship with Jesus, right there in the back of the room today, there's going to be a person that you can just go and talk to. They're going to celebrate with you. They're going to pray with you. They're going to believe Jesus and his mercy with you and for you. And we're going to pray with you if there's anything that we can do. Uh, to continue to walk with you as you figure out what it looks like to be that, that person getting up that Jesus said, go and sin no more. We would love to walk with you in that way in the future. And so they'll help you figure out what those next steps can look like. But before we do anything else, before Mark comes up, I, I would just like to pray for you and pray with you. And so let's come one more time before our faithful Savior and mercy giver. His name is Jesus. And so Jesus, we, we come and we talk to you today. We come and we, we say to you, we recognize that you are the only one who is eligible to judge our souls. And we know that we are sinners in need of your mercy. Knowing that, Jesus, we say thank you to you for paying the price for us to receive mercy. As we confess that we are sinners, we receive your mercy. Jesus, would you help us to live lives that are humble, Teach us to love others rather than judge them. Make your church, this church and your global church, make us a place of acceptance and mercy and grace. 
Make us a people who are eligible to help others as we point them to you. And God, I would pray this blessing over this church and over my friends today. In the name of Jesus, may you be deeply bothered and troubled by the plank in your own eye. May you be humbled before the perfect judge of your soul whose name is Jesus. May you find him in your, hum in your humility to be a loving and merciful friend. May his mercy bring you healing and peace and new purpose every single day. And may you be a blessing as you've been so blessed. In the name of Jesus, amen.